turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis, Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 31 will be our scripture reading for this morning. When you find that, you can go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. When the, script, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand to honor that, um, if you're able to stand, um, and uh, we, this is what we do. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we use that text to kick off a series on the family, a biblical view of the family. That is what we are aiming at in the next few weeks. Uh, and uh, just to start out with, why do, we, why do we need this series? Why are we going here? Um, what we want to do in this series, the elders and uh, all of us, what we want to do is we want to help give biblical principles to help equip families in our congregation particularly dads. As we walk through the pages of Scripture, we understand that husbands, that fathers, are held responsible directly by God for the leading of their families. And so uh, as we, it's helpful to go through, well, what does the Bible actually say about the family? How does that work? And so we want to take this time to equip our families. And we need that especially because the family, as you know, is in shambles in our country and is often under direct assault. Just think about the major issues that we are always in the headlines. Uh, we can think about things like men and women's roles. We can think about things like divorce. We can think about things like homosexuality. We can think about things like transgenderism. We can think about things like abortion. And really, if you trace them back, they all relate to the family, don't they? And that is because... Uh, God has a huge design for the family. He has, he's had a huge design since the beginning, a, a noble design, a, a critical design. And so because of that, Satan loves to assault the family with his world system and with his counterfeits. And so we need to spend some time revisiting, well, what's the family all about? What is God's design for the family? You see, God has designed the family as one of, if not the, foundational structure of society, period. And we'll see that this morning. It's, it's that foundational. Sometimes we just think, well, yeah, the family's nice, and if it works out, that's good. But no, God has designed the family as one of the foundational structures of society and how he pursues his aims in the world. Really, it's the most powerful, if you think about it like this, the most powerful structure that God has given for perpetuating a true knowledge and love for God, 
Or another way to say that is that it is one of the, the primary vehicles of discipleship. If you were to put it in terms of discipleship, like we've been talking about in Matthew, uh, the family is, uh, is designed to be one of the primary vehicles for discipleship, for knowing who God is, for following um, God. And so we need to revisit this. And especially as we have some younger families in our congregation, up and coming, they're growing in this. And I myself am one of those. And so as we go through these principles, we're revisiting, well, what are the things that we steer by? What has God given us to steer by for, for this? And what you need to understand is that as we live God's design for the family, especially in the midst of a world where the family is in shambles, then that becomes a key way to being salt and light in our world, in our communities. And it can give us um, incredible opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. You see, all of even the family, as, as we walk through this, it's, it's going to come back to the gospel, uh, that the gospel redeems the family. And so only through the gospel can we live out God's design for the family. And if we are living out God's design for the family in a world where it is being trashed, and it is being disregarded, and people see God's design and how it's supposed to work, well, then that becomes a, a primary way of proclaiming the gospel, just being the kind of family that God wants us to be. Now, I've already referenced this. Uh, you might be asking a question, well, Chris, uh, how, how can you speak to this? You don't have any kids. That's true, I don't. But we are pursuing adoption, and we're working through that, and I appreciate your prayers for that. I appreciate already uh, those of you who have uh, contributed to the adoption fund. We've already been able to use some of that for our expenses, and so praise the Lord for that. We, we, so we're pursuing that, but the question you might ask is, well, what do you have to say to us because you don't have that experience? And that's true. I don't. I don't have experience, uh, at least with kids and raising kids. Uh, so I can't give you experience. I can't give you experience. Andre will do some of that and some of the other elders and uh, mature families in our church. That's what we want. That, uh, that, that's that model of discipleship, right? That, okay, you haven't been down this road of, uh, of life yet, and yet who's the person or the people who are down the road of a ways uh, who have gone down this, who have raised biblical, uh, biblically mature families, and you can talk to them for the experience. What does that look like? Rubber meets the road. But what I can give you is what the Scripture says. I mean, that's all what I can give you, right? If I'm not proclaiming the Scripture from up here each week, then what am I doing? But I can give you, in regards to the family, what are the biblical principles of the family? Or you can think about it like this. As I prepare to be a father through adoption, that's what I'm aiming towards, these, what I want to share with you, are the truths and the principles that I want to be live under. Because if the scripture says it, then I need to live under it. And we all need to live under it because God says it. And so that is my aim in the next few weeks, at least as I speak. And then, like I said, Andre will take one of the sermons to give some more of the practical rubber meets the road kind of things as, fam as far as family discipleship. But we can, get, uh, we can get the principles, we can get the truths that scripture says that we can steer by, that we're always steering by as we're a family. And so just to give you a big picture, as we go through this series, what we're going to do, and what I always, usually like to do, is to give you a big picture. Let's give the big picture of the scriptures and what they say about the family. And then as we go through the series, you'll see that narrowing more and more down to you know, more specific principles or practical issues as we go. So we're starting at a big picture level, and then we're funneling down to smaller level. 
So what we see and what we're going to start with over the next couple weeks, and just to give you a hint that the, uh, the sermon notes for today, I'm only going to get through the first two points, um, and you'll see why in a minute. But what our goal is over the next couple weeks is to get a big picture of God's plan and story of the family through the scriptures. So we're talking about Genesis to Revelation. What has God said about the family? Obviously, we're only going to be able to hit the highlights because if you spent any time reading the scriptures, you understand that the family is laced through all of scripture. It's laced through all of scripture. So I want to give you the highlights of that. But, uh, especially for this first week, uh, we're going to spend some particular time and some dedicated time in Genesis. You see, anytime you do this, anytime you want to trace a theme through Scripture, well, you're always going to start in Genesis 1 through 3, right? Because everything kind of explodes out from Genesis 1 through 3 and the way that God has designed the world and all of its aspects— and so uh, you get the, the, it's kind of a concentrated area where every word matters, every phrase matters, every structure matters. And so you start there and you need to get the foundation right. And then you trace those foundational principles and themes, et cetera, through the rest of scripture. So we're just going to be in Genesis today. And that's okay. We'll, we'll spend some time here and then we'll get through the rest of the Old Testament next week. How's that sound? <laughs> But, but uh, again, this is so foundational. This is why we're here, and every word matters in the early chapters of Genesis. And so our goal for today, well, really our goal for the next few weeks, we're going to get a big picture of God's plan for the family through the scriptures. Today, that's going to be in Genesis, the first few chapters. So let's talk about first, first, let's talk about the family and creation. Let's talk about the family and creation. And really, it goes back to that text that we read this morning. Uh, this text we keep coming back to and we keep coming back to because really, Genesis 1, 26 through 31, when God creates man, that's who we are. God is saying, this is who you are, and this is my design for humanity. So we're always coming back there. And I've come back to this text multiple times, even since my time here, but uh, now we look at it from a different kind of angle. And we see how important the family is to what it means to be human, what it means to be human. Look at verse 26 in chapter 1 again. Then God said, let us make man or mankind as our image after our likeness. Now, I've uh, talked about this multiple times, but that, that idea of image and likeness, it's, it's terminology that Moses is uh, as Moses is speaking to the Israelites, they would have been familiar with. And the idea of image and likeness, it's more the idea of a function. It's more the idea of a function. So you can think about all these old kings and what they would do to signal, here's where I reign in the world. They would put an image. They would put a statue of themselves to show, hey, I rule here. And that is a lot of what's going on here. There's two aspects to it. There's a horizontal aspect, so man's relationship to the creation. That's the language of image. You're imaging forth God to the creation. Uh, and then there's the language of likeness. And likeness is a vertical relationship. God is saying, I'm creating you, mankind, uh, in a likeness to image. That is the idea of what's going on. And uh, the idea of the image language is the idea of steward kingship. And we'll see more of that rule kind of language, that dominion language. Uh, but that's the idea of being an image bearer. You're a steward king on behalf of God to honor God in the creation. 
but you're a likeness of God, you're, a, you're in the likeness of God as a son, as a son. That's a son kind of relationship. And you're like, well, how do you know that? Well, go to Genesis 5 briefly, um, and you see that after everything kind of kicks off, we get one of the first genealogies in the book of Genesis. But notice how the language in Genesis 5, 1 through 3 ties in with the language in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is the book of, this is Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So this likeness idea, this is not just man, this is man and woman. Both genders, only two genders, fixed genders, in but one likeness, one image. One image, one likeness, two and only two genders. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man, or mankind, when they were created. Now, notice this, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So even as we start here, this, this language of image and likeness, in that vertical relationship with God, that is a son kind of relationship. You can kind of think about it like this. It's a sort of an adoptive relationship, adoptive by creation. God creates man with his functions and his, all his functions and what he's supposed to do. But that relationship that man is supposed to have with God is a son type relationship. It is an intimate relationship, even as man is supposed to be a steward king in ruling over the world for God's honor and for God's glory. Go back to Genesis 1, and we see that that's what man is supposed to do. So, 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, plurality, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man as his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see it? One image. One likeness, two fixed genders, male and female. And notice what happens next. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we've got offspring. And it's offspring for what? What's the purpose of all of this? It's for the purpose of exercising a stewardship rule and dominion over all the earth for God's glory. But do you see how God has made man, mankind, as his image, in his likeness, to do that, to exercise rule and dominion? And in so doing, what has he done? How is, what capacity has he given to man? He's made two genders such that they can come together and be fruitful and multiply and produce offspring. A.K.A. we have the family. The family. The family, from the beginning, is how God wants to uh, have mankind exercise a rule and dominion over the created order uh, uh, for God's honor and glory. You can kind of think about it like this. God created everything really good. Everything's great. Uh, and, but in, the, in some sense, a lot of the creation is untamed. It's also 
uh, where Adam and Eve to start with, they're in the Garden of Eden. What are they supposed to do? Well, God wants to show his dominion and his glory over all the earth. So where does he want images? He wants images over the whole earth. And that's what he does. He forms the family to accomplish that task. So not only man and woman together as they join in marriage, but also the offspring they produce, the family as a unit. The family as a unit is God's vehicle for doing what mankind is fundamentally supposed to do, namely retask creation, work in creation, do all that they do in creation for God's glory and honor. In other words, uh, individual people, men and women, but also the family unit is all oriented towards God's glory and honor. The family exists for God's glory and honor. That is the purpose and the ultimate function of the family, to bring honor and glory to God in exercising rule and dominion over the creation. And God endows man in the family with the necessary capacities to do this and the necessary relationships to do this. One other thing I would note here at this, this point, well, a couple other things I'll note, but one is that uh, if you think about the way this is set up, so God creates man in his image and his likeness, and then what do we see in Genesis 5? That he creates this perpetuating process well, how, you know, God gave his original mandate to Adam and Eve. How are the kids, the offspring coming from this, supposed to know what they're supposed to do in exercising rule and dominion for God's glory and honor? They have to be taught. They have to be taught. So even implicit in how this is put together with the perpetuation of offspring, there's already built in, all right, um, um, God has tasked us to be steward rulers, to be steward exercise his stewardship dominion over the earth to be priests and kings uh, over the earth for his honor and for his glory. Uh, we know how to do that. Now we need to pass it on to the next generation for that fundamental purpose. Another thing I would note to you in this passage, notice how it started. Verse 26, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Now, what did we say? That ancient kings, they would put statues out there in the creation to represent themselves. So God has to build mankind in such a way that he can reflect himself accurately. Well, what do we see here? There's a plurality in God, the us. Scripture will later spell that out and what that plurality is, but there's a plurality in God, even as there is one God. And so what does God do? He creates a plurality in man, a diversity in man, in such a way that we have one unit, we have a family, but with plurality, with differences, with distinctions within the family. Why? Because that mirrors who God is. And so even the diversity and the unity within the family is, as they work as a unit, as they work together for God's glory, and, uh, God's honor, and exercising stewardship rule in the creation, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. It's purposeful. What else do we see? What else do we see as we run through the chapters of Genesis and we get um, uh, God's plan for the family? Well, we can jump over to chapter 2. So if Genesis 1 is kind of the big picture view. Genesis 2 is the, the zoomed-in view of some of creation, especially the creation of man. And so we can jump over to Genesis 2. Now, I'll just back up just to verse 15 for a second. 
Because God creates man first. He creates the male first. He creates Adam first. And what, is, what does God do with Adam? He, of course, gives him this, this mandate, and we kind of see another angle on that mandate in verse 15. Yahweh God took the man, after he just created him, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. In other words, to, um, th- these two words are it's kind of the idea of toiling, but also um, uh, keeping, guarding. The idea of keep is guarding. Actually, these two words are used in connection with later the tabernacle and the temple. And so what God is saying is, not only are you a king, you're a priest, for my honor in where I have placed you in the world. And he's given that mandate first and foremost to the man, to the man, to the male. And then what do we see? We know this, Genesis 2.18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, or the idea is correspondence. Uh, It's kind of hard to bring over, but it's the idea of, I'm going to make him a helper corresponding to him so that he can do what he's been tasked to do. What has he been tasked to do? Exercise rule and dominion on the earth, work and keep God's creation for God's glory and honor. He's not going to do it alone. It's not going to work that way. He needs a helper corresponding to him to come alongside him. Now out of the ground, the Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he called them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. A man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit or corresponding to him. So Yahweh God took a deep, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so what do we see here? God says, all right, here's the mandate to man. He's going to take a functional lead in what I'm having mankind do in the world, but he needs a helper, and he needs a helper to correspond to him, to come alongside him as he exercises that rule and dominion. And in fact, that's what we see, right? Genesis 1, it talks about both exercising rule and dominion on the earth. How is that going to work itself out? Well, the man has a functional priority in that, and the woman is to come alongside as a helpmate corresponding to make that reality happen, to make that reality happen. And we get the conclusion here from Moses, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So notice what Moses is doing here. He's saying, let's take that pattern, and that pattern is going to be the pattern for the rest of humanity um, uh, ongoing into the future. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So what do we have there? We have a man and a woman, a father and a mother, and then we've got their offspring. And then here's how the family is going to perpetuate itself. That offspring is going to leave and hold fast to his wife that they may become one flesh. What's the idea of one flesh? Well, of course, it's the sexual union, but it's more than that. It's the idea that this man and woman are coming together to form one new entity, separate from the entity they started with. They're going to leave that initial entity of family, and they're going to start a new one. They're going to start a new one, a new family in God's eyes. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
So what do we, what do we see already? What do we see already in this? The man and woman, husband and wife, are equal image bearers. They have total equality in terms of image bearing, and yet they have a distinction in terms of function and role. The man's to take a functional lead. The woman is to come alongside as a helpmate as they do what? Exercise rule and dominion in the creation as they work and keep things for God's glory. And we also see this, the foundational family unit. In it, what is the foundational family unit? The irreducible unit of a family. The marriage of a man and a woman. One man and one woman. That's what we see here. God brings one man and one woman together, and as soon as you have that marriage, that one flesh relationship, that new bond in God's eyes, that is a family. That is a family, apart from offspring. Now, offspring are supposed to be part of that picture. We've seen that in both passages, that the picture of this is that uh, the picture, the normal pattern is that this man and this woman coming together are going to produce offspring. That's normal, and that's part of God's design. Part of God's design. The normal family. Uh, obviously, since we can talk, since, since when sin enters the world, that's going to change, right? But the normal pattern of the family is that they're going to come together and they're going to produce offspring because God has designed all three corners of that triangle, the man, the woman, and the offspring, to work together as a family unit. Why? For God's honor and for God's glory in the world. It's part of the idea of the multiplication of image bearers in the world for God's glory and honor. It's part of God's basic covenant with man. This is what we call the Adamic covenant. This multiplication of image bearers and the instruction of new image bearers on what it is to live in God's world and to exercise stewardship rule for God's glory. Now, just pause here and think about this. This is a grand task. This is a noble task. This is a kingly and priestly task, which stands against um, how our culture views the family as dispensable. It is indispensable to how God has created the world. And you need to feel that. You need to feel the nobleness and the dignity of what God's plan is for the family, and you need to honor it, because that's how God designed it. We've said this, and I'll say it again, the unity and the diversity. Uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, um, I am very different from my wife, Ashley. Right? You, husbands and wives, you feel that difference there, right? And probably kids, right? You feel your difference from your parents. And yet what is supposed to happen in the family unit is that unity and diversity in the family, there should be unity of purpose, unity of action. It's a reflection of the unity and diversity within God. Let us make man in our image. And we'll see as we progress that Scripture will make clear that showing that in showing that diversity and unity is a way of picturing the divine family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's been the family, the archetype for family for all eternity. And as you become a family and you work together for one purpose in diversity and unity, you are picturing, imaging God's work, God's, God's own being. That's how he just designed man. He's created him with the, the diversity and the unity to do that. It's part of the function of what it means to fulfill the function of God's image in the world. 
And catch this, God's design for the family is central to what it means to be human and to honor God. Now, that's not to say that, okay, you're a single and you don't have a, you know, like somehow you're isolated as an individual and you're somehow less a human because you didn't get married or didn't have kids. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the normal way that God has designed each individual is to come together, husband and wife, produce offspring, and that's fundamental and inseparably tied to how God has created humanity. The family is integrally tied to what it means to be human and to honor God. I want you to feel that, and I want you to feel the dignity, the honor, the responsibility of how God has designed the family in that way. The family from creation. So we've got the family in creation. We've got the foundations. We've got the foundational definitions and role of the family. Now, what happens with family and the fall? Family and the fall. We start in chapter 3. And we're going to kind of work our way from, in a, I'm hitting highlights, remember, not a full exposition, but we're going to work from verses 1 through 21, because here's where we see some of what the fall has done to the family. So verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent now, uh, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. Now I'll remind you, so what's going on here? We've got a literal like snake or serpent, whatever the serpent is, um, and he's a satanically empowered serpent. We, that becomes clear as things go along. This is a satanically empowered animal. Now, what, how has God designed and ordered the creation? Man has a, uh, the male has a functional role, a priority. Adam was created first, and he's given the task of uh, ruling over creation. Woman comes alongside as a helpmate. So you've got man, then woman, and both of them are over the animals. And what, that's important to note because what you're going to see is how is that order playing out in these verses. So we've got the serpent, the satanically empowered serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, now, think of the order here, man, woman, beast of the field. Here we've got a beast of the field doing what? Not going to the top, but going to the next level up. And you're going to see a reversal of order here. That's what's happening. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you remember that God had given that command to Adam when he created him. You can eat any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam taught his wife, and she knows. She, uh, and the serpent knows, and he's attacking that. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the free fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What just happened? The serpent, the satanically empowered serpent, just inverted the whole created order, didn't he? Because the man is to exercise leadership, priority, and uh, dominion. He's, uh, the woman is supposed to come alongside him as a helpmate. But what did he do? He, went, he inverted the chain of command, so to speak, to do what? To cause the fall to happen. In other words, the fall happened because of the inversion of the family order. Do you see that in the text? That, that God has designed the family and the family order. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. And the fall happened because the family order was inverted, because it was disrupted, because it wasn't handled according to God's design. And then we start to see the consequences. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now see what God is doing. God is not starting from the bottom. He's starting from the top. Who's he holding responsible? Well, the person who has the functional uh, priority in this scenario, the man, the man. He's holding the man responsible for what he has done. And then what does the man do? The man says, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, what is the creation order supposed to look like? The creation order is supposed to look like the man's exercising rule and dominion. Uh, he should have uh, crushed the snake, right? And said, don't listen to that, um, that thing. Crushed him. And he didn't. And we saw the inversion of the created order causing this mess. But from the beginning, the the man is supposed to rule and exercise dominion. His wife is to come alongside him and help him in that role. And if that's supposed to be a loving and caring relationship, you saw Adam. What did he do at the end of chapter 2? He's like, this is amazing. Thank you, God. He's praising God for what he has done in bringing the wife to him. But notice what he does now. Consequent, subsequent to the fall. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, he does confess that he ate, right? But he tries to pass the blame. But notice what I want you to see here is the the dysfunction in the family has already started. The dysfunction in the family has already started. Instead of praising and being excited and loving and caring for his wife as he was in chapter 2, now it's like blame shifting, right? Well, where did that come from? That came from the fall and the effect of sin already in the world. Then the Lord God said to the woman, so now he moves down the the chain of command, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And notice what happens. Now we get what we commonly call the curse from verses 14 um, through, through 19. And you will notice, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole section But you'll notice then that God goes back up the chain of command. He goes, all right, let's deal with the serpent, then let's deal with the woman, and then let's deal with the man. So you see the order in all of this and how it's working. I'm going to read the whole section, and I'm going to make some observations. Then Yahweh God said to the serpent, kind of fundamental cause of all of this, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock. Now, I want you to, we call this section the curse. I want you to notice where the word curse shows up and where it doesn't show up, okay? So first we see, because of you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. By In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, a couple observations here. A couple observations. Do you notice how the transition works from each, each category of person to the next? So the serpent, where, the, where God leaves off with the serpent, what's he talking about? He's talking about offspring, isn't he? And he's talking about the relationship with the woman. Where does he pick up with the woman? Childbirth. You see how those dovetail together. They work together. Well, uh, we're going to see this, that happens also between the woman and the man. Uh, we get this, um, this uh, the Genesis 3.16 and this issue of relationship between the man and the woman. Where does Genesis 3.17 pick up? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree. Do you see how they dovetail together? You see how they dovetail together? Where one section ends, the next one picks up. And that's going to be important for us here in the minute. I will also note this. The woman and the man are not cursed. It doesn't say that. It says the serpent is cursed, and it says the ground is cursed. It does not say the man and the woman are cursed. And you're like, well, wait a minute. There's still punishment involved. Yes, there is. I'm not saying there's not punishment involved. I'm saying that they're not cursed. This kind of a curse, as you can see from the serpent, means you're done. You're toast. There's no redemption. But that's not what God says with the man and the woman, because there is a plan of redemption, even that begins to start here in these verses. And what else do we see? We can see this. The woman is punished with multiplied toil and pain in childbirth. And really, if you think about that, um, and especially, what's, what's the solution of redemption that starts to begin to be painted in Genesis 3.15? Who's the downfall? What's the downfall of the snake? The downfall of the snake is a male offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, doing what Adam should have done but didn't. So the hope, even as the serpent is being cursed, the hope of restoration, the hope of redemption comes through a male offspring of the woman. And then we pick up with, well, where is the, what's going to happen with the woman? Uh, a multiplication of pain and pregnancy. Well, that's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? Because it's good that there's going to be a multiplication of pregnancy, isn't there? Because the whole hope that God has set up for the redemption is offspring. 
is the family, is an offspring of the Roman who will crush the, um, the serpent. Now, that's going to be painful, and that's the punishment. But it's kind of a mixed bag. It's both a blessing and uh, a, a punishment in what is said to the woman. Same thing goes with the man, doesn't it? What's, what's going to happen? He's supposed to be the provider. We see that. He's working the ground and to provide for himself and his family food to eat. But there's, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? There's pain and there's suffering in eating, but you still get to eat. You see how that's a mixed bag, these punishments. It's not a you're done kind of curse. It's a mixed bag of punishment and hope. Hope for the future. Now let's zoom in a little bit more on 3.16 because uh, a lot of times this verse is taken in a particular way and even it's translated in a particular way. So what do we got? 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and your pregnancy. That's literally how it reads. I will multiply your pain and your pregnancy. So positive and negative. In pain, you shall bring forth children, which is going to be necessary to crush the serpent, what we just saw in 3.15, that's the hope of redemption. And then we get the second half. Your desire, and this is how the ESV translates it, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, here's the reality about translations and these verses. They are hard. This is a hard verse to translate. It is difficult the ESV translates it as your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Like the woman's trying to usurp the man's authority. Have you heard that interpretation before? That Genesis 3.16 is setting up the battle of the sexes, right? That this is, this is what we get in a marriage. Well, we don't need this verse to prove that because it was already starting to happen in 3.12. Um, but maybe you've got the NASB and it says something a little more literal. It says your desire shall be toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. If you were to render it more literally, it would be like that. Your desire shall be toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. An interpretation has risen up in the last, let's say, 50 years that has said, well, this is a contrary desire. This is a usurping desire. The woman wants to usurp the role of the husband. I don't think that that's true, and I don't think that that's what this verse is saying. And I'll give you my reasons here in a second, but I'm not denying that that happens. That certainly happens. We don't need this verse to prove that. So what is going on in this verse? First, the word for desire, the word for desire is, is a rare, rare word in Hebrew. It's used three times in the Bible. It's used once here, once in Genesis 4-7, which is kind of a linked passage, and it's used one other time in Song of Solomon 7-11. Now, thankfully, uh, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are at least four other uses of this word that we can kind of get a sense of, what does this word mean? What, what does it mean? We understand word usage from, uh, understand words and what they mean from their usage. The word translated desire here is probably better rendered return. Turn or return. How do I know that? Well, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done before Christ, the word they use to translate this word is the word for turning or return. And uh, I think that's a better way of rendering it. So it be, if you were to translate it, it would be like this. Your return or your turn or your recourse will be towards your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. Um, so that's, that's one thing. This word that is used here, it's not, it's not a necessarily even a negative desire. In fact, you can see that in Solomon, Song of Solomon 7.11. It's not necessarily a negative desire. It is, and it's not even about desire at all. It's about the idea of returning or direction. It's some word that designates direction, relational direction towards, in this case, the husband. Second thing, reason I don't think the, the adversarial desire to usurp the man's authority is what's going on here is that view didn't exist in church history until an article came out in 1975. Basically, you can trace that view back to uh, a view that was proposed in an article in 1975. Now, if you look at most commentators on Genesis, a lot of them are going to follow that view because they became convinced by it. But there's kind of this rule of thumb that you have when interpreting Scripture that if a view is recent, probably not accurate. Probably not accurate. doesn't mean it's not, but it just means that it's suspicious. It's suspicious. And what the view does, that adversarial view of, of this verse, relies heavily on Genesis 4-7. Flip over to Genesis 4-7, because this is the, uh, the second use of this word, in Genesis, and you're going to see how similar it is. Genesis 4-7, and we're going to talk about this verse, but it says this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, same word, there's our word, is contrary to you, but you must rule over that. You see how similar that is to Genesis 3-16? And because they're so similar, and because it looks like, ooh, sin is crouching at the door, it's going to it's going to like, it's contrary to Cain, and it's going to master him, but you, Cain, you got to rule over it. That's where the idea of, well, Genesis 3.16 is talking about the, the desire of the woman to usurp the man's authority. But if we look at Genesis 4.7, Genesis 4.7 is a hard verse in and of itself, and I don't think that that's actually what's going on in Genesis 4.7 anyway. So how would I render it? Your return or your turning or your recourse shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Another reason I don't think this is a negative side of what's going on here, the word for rule, sometimes you hear the word for rule, is like, oh, that's like the man's going to domineer over the wife. And so you take this idea of rule as a negative word. But as it's used in Genesis, rule is not a negative word. The last time you see the word for rule is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. Genesis 1, 16 and 18 We'll just go ahead and read that real quick. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule. There it is. To rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. What's going on there? Well, you've got the lights that God puts in the heavens to rule over the day. Now, is that positive or negative? That's positive. That's positive because it's how God has designed the creation. In fact, if you work through even just the rest of Genesis and how the word rule is used, uh, except for our two passages, Genesis 3.16 and 4.7, it's either neutral or it's positive. It's either neutral or it's positive. You're like, well, then what is going on in Genesis 3.16? Well, remember how I said the sections dovetail together? Where does, where does God pick up with man? He picks up right where he left off with the woman, and what is he talking about? 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. What caused the fall? The inversion of the family order. So what is God saying at the end of Genesis 3.16? He's saying, your recourse, your return, shall be toward your husband and he shall rule over you. In other words, that's the creation order. God is reaffirming the creation order in Genesis 3.16 because that's what caused the fall to begin with. What caused the fall to begin with was Adam listening to the voice of his wife. What should have happened is exactly where Genesis 3.16 happens. The woman's recourse or her turning should have been towards her husband so that he can rule or exercise appropriate, good, stewardship, caring authority over her so that the fall didn't happen. So what God is doing, in my view, at the end of Genesis 3.16, he's saying, I'm reaffirming the creation order that should have happened in perpetuity. That the proper order in creation, with a functional lead of the man and the woman coming alongside of his helpmate, that functional order is still in place even in a fallen world. Now, let me ask you this. Can that order be abused? Absolutely, right? We already see the dysfunction starting to happen in, uh, in, in Genesis 3.12. Man's not, man, Adam's not caring for his wife like he ought to be, right? He can be domineering. There's no denying that that can happen, but what is God saying? God is saying, I'm reaffirming the creation order. Your return, your direction, wife, should be towards your husband, and he will rule in the sense of a beneficent, positive, good rule. That's what should happen he will rule over you. And, and so that's what God is doing in this. What is the fall effect? Yes, it introduces dysfunction in the family, but God is saying, yeah, but the same creation order is still there. It's just way harder now. It's just way harder now. Uh, procuring food is harder. The man being the provider is harder. The woman bearing offspring, which was the plan from the beginning, is now harder. But integral to all of that, see this, right? The family is a vehicle for God's plan of redemption, isn't it? Because who's going to fix everything? Where is redemption going to come from? The offspring of the woman, which is a family concept. So not only did the inversion of the family order cause the issues, but God's going to use that vehicle in the right order of that vehicle of family to produce redemption. So we've seen, kind of seen that issues in Genesis 3, but there's more to it. And this is where we'll get to hit our Genesis 4-7 passages. Uh, and one thing just to say, uh, um, when I uh, challenge an, uh, a, uh, a, an English translation like that, you've got to understand translation is really hard sometimes. And this is one of those times. There you've got scholars talking about this stuff all the way. You can absolutely trust your English version, so I'm not saying that at all. It's just sometimes you come to hard verses and you really got to work through it. So just so you understand that. All right, Genesis 4. 1 through 10. Let's see more of this, how it unfolds. Oh, one, one other thing, sorry. Uh, Genesis 3.20, what does man do? Man calls his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. So Cain hadn't even been born yet, but what does Adam understand? The, the, the hope, the hope for humanity is Living beings coming from the woman, namely the offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. So again, you see that hope bound up in the family, bound up in offspring, which is why you get all these genealogies in Genesis. They're looking for the offspring. Who's the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head? It's very family-oriented in that sense. 
Okay, Genesis 4, 1. So we see how this progresses. Now Adam knew his, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now, that sounds excited, doesn't it? And it makes sense why it sounds excited, because the hope is bound up in the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the seed of the serpent. So what happens? So like, yeah, Cain's the guy. This is going to be resolved, and it's going to be fixed no time. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought um, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So uh, Abel does what's right. Cain does what's wrong with his offering. God's favor rests on Abel, not on Cain, even though he's the firstborn. And Cain gets gloomy and angry. Cain gets gloomy and angry. So God addresses this. Verse 6, Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? You shouldn't be. That's the implied understanding, right? Why are you angry? You shouldn't be. And why is your face fallen? You shouldn't be. And then God explains. Verse 7, which is a hard verse, another hard verse, but I'll try to walk you through it. If you, Cain, do well, will you not be accepted? Now, what is God saying? He's saying, Cain, look, if you would have done what was right to begin with, you would have been accepted. My favor would have rested upon you. So that's what you need to do. You need to do right. You need to do what um, I've evidently God teaches them about sacrifice so that they know to sacrifice. And God's saying, look, if you would have done well to begin with, with the sacrifice, you would have been accepted. There wouldn't have been this issue to begin with. But then what does he say next? If you do not do well, now let's pause there. So what's he saying? He's saying, all right, uh, you haven't done, did Cain do well? No, of course he didn't do well. So what is God talking about? Well, in the situation in which you don't do well, in which case you sin or you fall short of what God's plan is, what do you need to do? And here's where we get into some difficulty. ESV translates it, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is the verse that is kind of used to bolster the you know, attack of the woman against her husband view in Genesis 3.16. The problem is, is that if you translate the word, the, the, I can't go into all the details of this. If you have more questions, I can tell you later. But the grammatical construction doesn't work if the word is sin. You're like, well, what is the word then? Well, the word means either sin or sin offering. Either means sin or sin offering, like meaning a sacrifice. And I think sin offering is the proper translation, given the context of sacrifice. Because what is God saying? Well, if you don't do well, how do you fix it? A sin offering, and then the word that's translated here, crouching, this word usually means an animal lying in repose. Not like crouching, like ready to strike, but like an animal lying in repose. That's usually how it's used. So what is God saying? He's saying, look, Cain, if you don't do what's right, like you haven't, sin, a sin offering is lying at the door. Whose door? Well, it either means Cain's door to whatever abode he has, or it means the door of Eden that was just blocked off with the cherubim. You remember Eden's like this archetypal picture of the temple, 
And it would make sense that you're talking about taking a sin offering to the doorway of the temple. I think that's the better view of this verse. So God's telling Cain, look, you messed up, you haven't done well, so what do you do to fix it? A sin offering for atonement so that we can have a right relationship, so that my favor can rest on you again. A sin, offer, a sin offering is lying at either your door or you lay it at the door of Eden. Now, what about the last bit? Its desire or return, we said that word is maybe better translated return, its return is towards you, but you must rule over it. Now, in this view, the it is usually taken to be the sin offering. However, the pronoun there can either be it or him. It doesn't make any sense to talk about the sin offering returning to Cain so that he rules over that. What does that even mean? So what's the other possibility for a, this pronoun? Abel. He's the only other male kind of person present. So what is he saying? Here's what I think he's saying. His return, meaning Abel's return or recourse, is to you as the firstborn Cain, but you must rule over him. In other words, I think what this verse is saying is that um, Abel's doing it right, but he actually wants you to take on the role that you're supposed to do as firstborn in exercising a dominion over him and doing what is right by sacrifice. I think that is the best view of this verse. And again, what do you see? It makes sense if that's what 3.16 means, that 4.7 means that, because what's the issue in both verses? The right ordering of relationships. The right ordering of relationships. As you read through Genesis, what you see is there's this kind of issue between firstborn and laterborn, and like what's going on there? There's all sorts of conflict and issues, and it starts here with Cain and Abel. And God's saying, Cain, do what you need to do as the firstborn. Do what you're supposed to do in leading even your brothers in relation to right sacrifice and right relation to God. It's about family ordering. Family ordering. Cain doesn't do that. Doesn't take on his responsibility as he should. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and while they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain doesn't take the Lord's rebuke, and instead of slaughtering a sin offering, he slaughters his brother. And what do you see from that? You see dysfunction in the family between the first two brothers, and one murders the other. So as we think about and kind of summarize what we've seen with creation and the fall, what do, we, what do we learn? The subversion of the family order resulted in the fall. When the family order is disregarded, right, at least in the beginning, it resulted in the fall. And then coming from the fall, of course, there's dysfunction in the family. Uh, the first brothers uh, the, the, uh, murdered, one murdered the other. You've got uh, passing the blame game. Uh, um, Adam's not a caring leader as he ought to be. But in all of that, God still reaffirms the family order from creation. It's still in place. Man still has a functional role in leading. The wife is still supposed to return and turn towards her husband as a helper. And that order still needs to be respected. 
And then you also see this. In the midst of the dysfunction, in the midst of the distortion of the family, family is the hope, isn't it? Because the offspring from the woman, the male offspring from the woman, is the hope for the restoration of Edenic conditions. And like I said, that's what drives the rest of the genealogies in Genesis. That's what the genealogies are all about. We're looking for the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent so that we can restore things back to the way they ought to be. And so as you think about the family, as we think about this and we get these foundations in Genesis, we see both God's noble role for the family, the dignity of it, how amazing it is, and then its distortion and how it's breaking down and how it's so sad. But there's hope in it, isn't there? There's hope in the gospel. That 315 verse, we know the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, that ultimately is Jesus Christ. And he has dealt the serpent a death blow at the cross and will ultimately crush him in the future. And, he's the, um, and, and that brings us hope. So even as we think about the family, and it's like, yes, I want my family to function that way, and yet there's dysfunction, there's brokenness. Well, what do we go back to? We go back to God's grace. First, that we all are rebels, children of Adam and Eve, deserving God's wrath, deserving to be cursed, and yet he hasn't cursed us. He's given us hope, and he's given us an atonement. He's given us a sin offering in Jesus Christ, hasn't he? The one who died in place of our sin, your sin, my sin, and lived the righteous life in our place so that he was offered on the cross so that we could have God's favor rest on us. That's where we start, first and foremost. And that comes, that offspring came through family, even an earthly family. Joseph, the adopted father, and Mary, And then from that, from that hope in the gospel, through that trust in Christ, we have God's favor on us so that, yes, in measure, we can live God's order for the family. Not perfectly. We know we don't do that perfectly, and yet we can pursue it. We can pursue transformation. We can pursue those family roles and order to God's glory and honor because of what Jesus has done and because of the grace of God upon us if you're in Christ. That's why it's so powerful, so powerful a vehicle for the gospel when as a Christian family who is trusting in Christ and you're laboring to fulfill the created order that God has given to the family and it works not perfectly, but in measure by God's grace, it works. It becomes a powerful, a powerful picture of the hope of the gospel because the world is falling apart. It doesn't care about the family. And we see it murdering each other, seeing it break down and, dis, and, and go to, go to uh, devastation. And yet when you see a family, it's like, that's the family working right. Why is the family working right? Why, what, what? Because of Christ, because of the male offspring of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and has atoned for me and has given God's grace to me. And you too can have that grace. That's how it transitions Towards the gospel. It's amazing. The family is amazing. This is just the beginning. We get the foundations here. We'll be able to move more quickly as we move through the Old Testament. But we see the foundations here, which sets the trajectory for the rest of it. Let's pray as we continue to pursue this study. Father, we have only touched the surface this morning and the very foundations, but we thank you for the family. We thank you for its foundational role. 
And Lord, yet there is sadness, there's devastation, there's brokenness, there's no denying it, and yet there's hope. And we thank you for the hope through Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your redemption of us as individuals so that as a families we can live in the way that you want us to live. Help us, give us grace this week to live that way. We would pray. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for being our sin offering, Lord Jesus, in our place. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.